Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Good morning. Someone responded before I even turned on the microphone. Good to see all of you. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 13. Uh, If you don't have a Bible or you'd like to follow along in one, there is one in the chair in front of you or near you. Uh, Next week will be our first Sunday in Lent, and this Wednesday uh, is Ash Wednesday, which means that we will gather together. Uh, Someone asked me, they said, Ash Wednesday on Valentine's Day feels a little odd, and I said, well, that's why instead of the cross, we're going to put ashen hearts on your head. Uh, It'll make a great conversation piece when you go out afterward. But uh, we'd love for you to join us here, 7 p.m. for Ash Wednesday, uh, as we move toward Easter and celebrate the resurrection together. So with that said, I'll begin reading in Luke chapter 13, verse 22. Then Jesus went through towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try and enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you've come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't, know, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves will be thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who will be first and those who will be last. Jesus is asked the question, who makes the cut? Who's in? Who's going to get in someday? I mean, this is a question It seems that religious people have been asking for thousands of years. And depending on the context that you find yourself in, how you respond to that question, especially if you respond in a way that some deem are wrong, will get you forever labeled a heretic or a terrible person. You will be the subject of people's ire simply because you offered a response to the question, who gets in that they disagreed with? 
And it seems that religious people are very interested in this question. And even though this question's been asked for thousands of years and it continues to be asked, there are some differences by what we might mean by some of the words in here and the person who asked the question might mean. Because not only are there 2,000 years of history between the time of this person asking the question and us sitting here together this morning, but there's also very big religious differences between our tradition in modern Christianity and this person's tradition in ancient Judaism. Now, in my experience, when people in the modern world, the modern Christian world, ask the question, who's in or who makes the cut, we're asking a very specific question around who gets to heaven. And what is often meant by that is when we die and our soul evacuates our body, which of those souls is going to ascend and breeze through the pearly gates and enjoy a disembodied existence for eternity with God? Now, I don't know if that's the way that you picture it, but especially in the Western world over the last centuries, this is often the way it's pictured. People in white robes with halos on clouds playing an instrument, which is the most boring picture of the afterlife you could ever develop. I don't know anyone who thinks, that sounds like a good time. Now, this way of thinking also includes the people who aren't in, who go to a different place that does not have requisite air conditioning, if you catch my drift. And so when you ask who's in, you're also asking, and who's out? In this picture that we often have or have been given or we imagine of this heaven celestial disembodied place and this place of eternal conscious torment is a very Greek way of thinking. And it's often something that we read into the sacred text, that we read into the Bible. Now, lest you think that you're someone who doesn't read things into the Bible, I have bad news for you. All of us come to the Bible with ways of thinking and thoughts that we read into it, every bit as much as everyone else. And with regard to this idea of who's in, who's out from a modern Christian perspective, it's something that's out there beyond death. Now, for the person who asked the question, will only a few be saved, they had something else in mind, similar but a little bit different. The idea of saved within the Jewish tradition is not, does not mean that you are guaranteed that your soul ascends from your body and goes into heaven when you die. For the Jewish people, there was no separation between soul and body. You were one human. You were one person. And so this idea of some disembodied existence wasn't in their minds. They also had a much less developed understanding of the afterlife than we do in the Christian tradition, which is still the case, but was especially the case in ancient first century Judaism where we find Jesus. They would talk about the life to come. And for them, the life to come was the time when God would, on this earth, on this planet, restore the order of all things and bring peace and shalom and wholeness to all things. And for them, death into the life to come was much more of a seamless thread than it is for us in our modern understanding. 
And so the idea of being saved meant you could be saved now and you could be saved later because all of this is happening in the same place. And as much as there are some differences, there's also some similarities to the question, will only a few be saved? Or who makes the cut? And the similarities revolve around this idea of, well, there's some who are going to be with God and some who aren't, right? It's interesting, within a few decades of Luke writing his gospel, there were other writings that were going on that were brand new at the time that came from the Jewish tradition. And they began to talk about this idea of a few being saved. One of them is in the book of 4th Ezra, where an angel says to the prophet, the Most High created the world for many, but only a few will go into the life to come. And this kind of thinking began gaining traction right around the time Luke wrote his gospel within the Jewish community, that there's some who are in and there's some who are out. And not only are there some, there's few. And if you've been around the church for a while, if you've been around any religion for a while, you know that most religions tend to have in-groups and out-groups. And so this individual asked the question that thousands of people have been asking for thousands of years. Jesus, help me out here. Who gets in? Is it really just a few? Now, one of the things we ought to observe is Luke does not tell us what the motivation was of the person asking the question. And I say that because in some contexts, we immediately assume the worst. Oh, this is just someone who thought that he had the corner on the market and he was definitely in and he wanted to make sure that those people weren't going to be in because they're the sinners. And man, I would not want to spend eternity with them. But we don't know if that's why he asked. Maybe, maybe he's asking the question because he's really insecure about whether or not he is going to be in. Even though he's prayed the sinner's prayer over and over and over and over. Are you with me? You just can't be too sure. So if one is good, 75 is even better. Or maybe this is somebody who's been in the place where those who believe they're in have continually told him, yeah, people like you are out. Maybe you've experienced that too. A religious community because of who you are or what you believe, or the questions that you've dared to ask have said, yeah, you're probably going to hell. I had someone tell that to a friend of mine right in front of me one time, you're going to hell. And in an attempt to lighten the situation, I said to him, hey, they told me that too, and if we're both there, it's gonna be a blast. (laughs) Turned out that didn't go over very well. Um, I didn't read the room when I said that. But we don't know why this guy's asking the question. He's simply asking it, and he's sincerely asking it, I think, in a way that many of us have either wondered to ourselves about or that we've asked out loud. Who gets in? And I love Jesus' response because his response actually would not have been shocking to anybody because he uses very familiar imagery. He begins by talking about the narrow door. Now, one of the books that was written again around the time of Luke called the Testament of Abraham, uses very similar imagery. There's the narrow way 
and the narrow door that leads to life, and there's the broad road and the broad door that leads to destruction. So this image that Jesus uses isn't even original with him. This had been circulating and had been used before within Judaism. Jesus is just plucking a very familiar metaphor, and he says something interesting. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. In this imagery that he's using and the imagery that's found in other Jewish writings is the imagery that narrow is the way that leads to life and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And so when Jesus says this, he would have captured the listener's ear because they knew what he was talking about. Now all of this can feel very doomsday-ish or it can feel it's very this or that But many point to the fact that this idea of the narrow and the broad actually connects to the words that Moses spoke to the people of Israel after they had been liberated from Egypt, the land of slavery, and after 40 years were getting ready to enter into the land that God had promised to their forefather Abraham. Moses repeats the Ten Commandments, and then this is what he says to them, to the people of Israel. Now, what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. I set before you a way of life that follows after the heart of God and it will lead you toward life and prosperity. But you have a choice. And I'm telling you this, the other way is going to lead to death and destruction. Now, some can hear that as like almost like a veiled religious threat. But let me ask you, what if like we lived in a world where we had kept 60% of the Ten Commandments? Like every human who had ever been born and ever had lived for their entire life just observed 60% of the commandments. Like what if everyone honored their parents? What if nobody took the life of another human being ever? What if there was fidelity in all marriages? And what if there was fidelity in all relationships? What would happen if nobody stole? I had a conversation the other day about how common embezzlement is in the business world. Like, common. Like, what if that just never happened? What if no one ever took something that didn't belong to them? Every parent of a teenager would be like, oh my God, that would sound like heaven. What if no one lied? It'd make it really awkward for parents of a child who's not very cute, wouldn't it? Isn't he adorable? Well, definitely know who his parents are. (laughs) That got awkward. See, it would be an awkward world, wouldn't it? What if we never coveted? What if you never... Let's just say, what if you were content with what you had? What if you were happy for what other people had? Would that be a better life? Would that be a more whole world? Would there be more prosperity in all places? This is what Moses is saying. Listen, God's heart is woven through these new ways of life. And if you live according to them, you will experience life to the full. Think about it. It's just like parenting. 
I don't know any healthy or loving parent who tells their kids to do something simply for the sake of making their life miserable. Why do parents give instructions to their kids? Why do parents, when the kids are young, have more uh, tighter boundaries for them? Because we know what can happen if you make certain mistakes. There are parents who know what it's like to do something that you will regret for years. There are people who know what it feels like when you say something in a moment of anger that lands and wounds someone you love. And all of those things destroy goodness. And so what do we do? We train up our children in the way that they should go. Because any healthy and loving parent wants their child to experience life and life to the full. Strive, Jesus says, for that narrow way. Why not? That's the way to life. And then he says this, though. And many are going to go there and not make it. Now, if Jesus had stopped there, that would have been a very satisfactory answer. As a matter of fact, that's the way most people responded to this kind of question. Whether it's the narrow gate imagery that he uses in the uh, Gospel of Matthew or the narrow door here or in other Jewish writings. Strive to live a life that follows after the heart of God and know that many others are going to try and they're not going to make it. And then he keeps going and I think he starts messing with things. Because he talks about what happens when the owner of the house gets up and shuts the door. Now, this can sound really harsh. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes I fall into a place where when I read the words of Jesus, I just like imagine this really stern, angry person who's really threatening. But on this part, I almost wonder like if Jesus is kind of like being a little comedic, maybe a little like dark comedy, upsetting comedy but comedic because he says, listen, the guy's going to shut the door and then you're going to show up and you're going to assume the owner knows who you are. And so you almost imagine like someone knocking on the door, maybe they're with a couple friends and like, you sure this place is open? Oh yeah, I've been here before. And you hear, who is it? It's Roger. Who? You know, Roger? I've never met anyone named Roger. No. <laughs> we had dinner last week. Remember, it's, uh, I told that one story. You, you, <laughs> I'm pretty sure you really liked it. Yeah, I have, no, I have no idea who you are. It's kind of like if you've ever met someone that you admire or you've met somebody who's famous and you're really excited to tell your friends about it. Have you ever had the repeat occurrence where you get to meet them again? And then you're like hoping like they remember you. There's a writer named Anne Lamott. And years ago, about 15 years, 20 years ago, I got to meet her. And uh, we had a conversation. Five years go by and I got to meet her again. And I walked up to her hoping she would remember me. I mean. (laughs) (laughs) So I introduced myself and said, "Uh, Anne, you and I met five years ago and I, I'm, probably don't expect you to remember me. And she said, oh, good, because I don't. <laughs> it's that moment where you're like, no, like, come on, we're, we've been here before. 
And Jesus is telling this story. You can almost imagine the audience getting squeamish, like, nope. And when he finally continues knocking, this is what he hears. Get out of here. I don't know who you are. I don't know where you came from. You're a bunch of evildoers. Whew. But he doesn't stop there either. Because then he says, you're going to be outside the party, craning your necks to look into the windows, and you're going to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs of your faith. You're going to see the prophets Oh, and there's going to be people from everywhere who are sitting and feasting at that meal. It's interesting, I've heard this text kind of brought to a place where people say, yes, very few will get in. But the confusing thing is, is that Jesus kind of turns it a little bit and is like, no, all the people you thought weren't going to be in are actually in. And for those of you who really think there's going to be very few to get in, I invite you to read the book of Revelation where John has a vision and sees a multitude that no one can count. It may be possible that it's just the people that you think should be in. They might be out. You see, Jesus is always messing with long-held ideas and beliefs and assumptions when it comes to religion, and it's what he's doing here. He's kind of, in some ways, almost like poking at this idea that seems to be almost part of what it means to be human, that, that we just love our groups. We're groupish people. And sociologists have said that we as human beings have been in groups, in bonds, for tens of thousands of years. And many of them say it's just an evolutionary reality. That when we as human beings were foragers... We could go out and we would see good fruit, but we couldn't always get to it. And so one day we had an idea. I'm going to invite my friend to come with me and they're going to climb up on the tree and hang on it and pull the fruit down. Then I'll be able to pick more and we'll be able to carry more back to the village. And if it's better with two, maybe it's better with three or maybe it's better with seven or maybe it's better with 12. And so eventually what began to happen is human beings realized that when it comes to survival, there are, as we've long said, strength in numbers. And so we can collect more food, we can more easily propagate the species, and we can protect against real or perceived threats. And so from very early on in human development, humans began forming small social groups. And typically, you were all for the same thing. It started with survival, but it grew from there. Now, eventually, these small bonds of groups formed tribes, and these tribes formed cities, and these cities formed nations, and it's gone on and on like that. And now we have social media, so we have millions of groups that we can belong to. And now, the function of groups, in part, is it gives us a sense of belonging, we know who we are in part because of the group that we belong to. And there are all sorts of groups out there. Evangelicals. Trekkies. I find it interesting, by the way, that Trekkies have given themselves a nickname, but people who like love Star Wars, you know what they're called? Star Wars fans. <laughs> like, why don't you give yourself a nickname? I think it would be way better. Republicans, 
And some Republicans say, yes, but there's also rhinos. Because what are we doing? We're trying to find identity in a group. Of course, we have to talk about Swifties, don't we? Some of you are like, Swifties, I'm not familiar with that group. Okay, that's the group that believes that Taylor Swift is going to have a television special tonight called the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah. That's why there's going to be a lot more Chiefs fans who think that Travis Kelsey plays by himself against the 49ers, <laughs> and they'll still win. By the way, this morning when I got in my car, I'm not kidding, I get in my car, start the engine, Taylor Swift pops on, like midway through some song. I didn't know what it was, I just looked in the radio stations playing Taylor Swift, and I was like, the universe is sending me a signal. So I put $10,000 on the Chiefs to win. <laughs> and if they do, I just want you to know, I will tithe 10% to Denver Community Church on my winnings, gross, not net. And I'm doing that as an example for all of you to know how to give, but I digress. We love our groups, they give us a sense of belonging, but here's what's interesting about groups. Eventually you get to a place where you start saying, well, what about that group? Because if my group gives me belonging, well, then my group's right. I mean, most of the time, my group's pretty cool. And besides, when you get a group together this size and we all think the same thing and speak the same language and look the same and, and walk the same and act the same, like, we can't be wrong. Well, how do you know what you believe? Well, because you begin comparing yourselves to another group. And I've never met anybody in a group who says, no, my group is totally and completely wrong and that group is 100% right who chooses to stay in the group that's wrong. Isn't it interesting when we ask questions of who's in and who's out, it's often done so from the perspective of like, well, we're in, so who else is with us? See, what happens is when you begin to enter into certain groups, you then begin to find what sociologists began calling in the 1970s the out group, the people that are not like you, the people who are different than you, the people who probably won't be at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In some ways, it's almost like it's, we have this human propensity to draw really tight boundaries, if only to make ourselves feel better about what we believe or who we are or who our group is. Pastor and writer Robert Capon says this, it is the old disgraceful human story. All of us, even the rankest outsiders, feel better about ourselves if we can keep someone else further outside than we are. Now, some of you might be sitting here going, yeah, I get that idea of people, you know, who always want to talk about who's out, but you know what? I'm really inclusive. <laughs> so you're superior? Or your way of thinking is it? Would you say it's better? You, you see, inclusivity sounds great. Let's just be honest, it really does. But in the words of one of my friends who's a pastor, I heard her preach a sermon once, and she said, I love the idea of universalism, but I also believe that God and God's humor, when it comes to the marriage supper of the Lamb, is gonna seat me between a legalistic pastor and a racist cop. Oof. Because let's be honest, There are some people where it would feel a lot better if they just weren't there, wouldn't it? 
A friend of mine, Alan Hilton, wrote a book called The House United, and in it, he talks about groups, and he says how he's beginning to realize in his own self that he's a part of a group that doesn't think they're superior to anyone. And he said, and all of a sudden, I began to realize, I think we're pretty great because we don't think we're superior. He said, it's a really vicious cycle, this whole in-group, out-group thing. Because ultimately, I think what it does at some level is it begins to really cut against our sense of fairness, which is also kind of what grace does. I mean, grace is, well, it's just pretty scandalous. I think it's why so many of us have such a hard time receiving it, which is also the same reason we have such a hard time giving it. Because maybe God's arms are wide open, and maybe Jesus isn't as interested in the, in the question as we are. Which is why he goes down this path of finally saying, listen, if you're consumed about who's in and who's out, you're actually going to miss the party. It doesn't mean the party's not going to happen. It is, and it's going to be a real banger. Uh, You're just, you're going to miss it. It's kind of like those moments where you get the email, you know, with the Evite attached and you get to go to a party. How many of you like are voyeurs and you look at the guest list first? Okay, we have like six honest people in the room. All of you should be raising your hands. You know you do. You're like, oh, they're there? Awesome. And then there's the, oh, they're, oh, they're, oh, they're there? Oh. And so you hit maybe because you're a millennial. <laughs> Just kidding. That was a low blow because it was true. <laughs> so then eventually someone says, are you going to so-and-so's party? And you're like, Yeah. And you keep checking the guest list, hoping that this person's not going to go, and then they do, and then you walk in, and they're there. How much fun do you have at a party when you're working as hard as you can to avoid somebody? Where you're just about to go up and grab something off the buffet table, and you see them going, and so you just kind of turn back around. And... Like, it's not really fun. It's actually, it's kind of miserable, And I think this is what Jesus is saying. You you really want to concern yourself about who's at the party, who's sitting at the table? That's not fun. That's not what this is about. I'm telling you, people are going to be there from everywhere, the people you would least expect. And one of the things that's most consistent in Jesus' teachings is that anytime someone is concerned about who is in and who is out, Jesus says, if that's your biggest concern, you're probably going to be out. Because God is not groupish. And the table is built big enough for everyone. And I think the troubling, most troubling part about Jesus' words is that they are for every single last one of us because all of us have a propensity to draw lines and to draw boundaries, no matter how artificial, that do not exist in the heart of God. And I think these words are as much for you and for me and for us as we think they are for the people who most need to hear them. Which is why Jesus concludes this little teaching with a wisdom saying that I think is a challenge to every single person who's ever lived or ever been in a group or ever asked this question, who's in? He says, hey, just remember, there will be many who are first, who will be last. And there are many who are last, who will be first. 
who can say what the kingdom of God is like other than it's not anything like the way so many of us operate? Because the first will be last. All of those we believe are already have their tickets punched, yet you'll be last. And all of the people that we could never figure out how they could ever get a seat at that table will be there before any of us. These are words for all of us because it's a question that all of us have asked. Let's pray together. God, I ask that we would never be those who fail to open ourselves up to being challenged by the teachings, the presence in the life of Jesus. I ask as we contemplate the ways in which we ask this question, who's in? Whether it be about the afterlife, whether it be about politics, whether it be about religion, social issues, I ask that you would cause us to be those that hear Jesus' admonishment. Strive for that narrow door. Strive to live in a way that reflects the heart of God, for that will be what leads you to life. That we would be those who strive and who are not only quick to not draw boundaries, but are quick to erase them. We pray these things together in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus uses the imagery of a meal, a feast, in this teaching in Luke, and this is what we're going to do together now. We're going to have a meal. The early Christians referred to the Eucharist as the love feast, and early on, anyone who wanted to come could come. They could experience the broken body of Christ. They could experience the shed blood of Christ. They could experience belonging in togetherness because none of us show up at this table because of all the things that we've done. We show up humbly and gratefully and joyfully because of what God has done. So this is why at Denver Community Church, we invite anyone who wants to come to do so. It's not our table. It's Jesus's table, the one who invited everybody. And so as you're ready, we invite you to come. We'll have two stations up front here and two on the sides. If you come to the center, we'd ask that you come down the center aisle. If you go to the sides, go down the side aisle, and you can return using the diagonal aisles. The large cup has wine. The short cup has juice. We'd ask that you take the bread and dip it in one or the other, and then you can take the elements. As we prepare, hear these words of liturgy from the Gospel of Matthew. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Come as you're ready. <clears throat> 